the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact us on the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We welcome all of your commentary, criticisms, and contributions. Um, on this week's program, we're going to talk about solar geoengineering, a highly controversial yet possible last resort when it comes to fighting climate change. Where are we with it and how bad does it look? First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me via the internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Jessamine, is about spines. That's right, Jonathan. It's about people who have had a fully severed spinal cord becoming able to walk again, thanks to a new implant that's been developed by researchers at EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Um, Now, a severed spinal cord, usually a very bad type of injury to get, um, causes lots and lots of physical issues, obviously, um, and it's quite hard to treat as well. Um, But the implant that these researchers have developed has now been implanted in nine people that had a fully severed spinal cord. Um, The way that it works is that basically you have electrodes that attach to uh, the brain side of the spine, and then on the other side of the cut, attaching to the different nerves going out into like the legs and kind of lower limbs. Um, And what this implant does is it basically boosts signals from the brain. So the problem that we have is that the signals aren't making it from the brain to the legs. Um, And this implant is basically just raising the level of those signals so that they can get through. And incredibly, with only about a day of training, uh, these people were able to walk again now with a walker, you know, so they're not not doing like somersaults in the gym or anything like that. Um, But they're also able to do things like cycling, swimming, kind of periodic movements. And it's really the first time that anyone with this complete kind of spinal cord injury has been able to walk again and so quickly. That's amazing. Um, We did a documentary with Mark Pollock, who people might be familiar with over here, the explorer who uh, went blind and then uh, fell out of a window and uh, became paralyzed. And uh, he was explaining to me how these signals travel down the spine and, and, and sort of how, you know, if you could get some sort of a Wi-Fi booster, there was real promise in this idea. And that's essentially what you're talking about here, that that the signal comes down and passes, sort of links over that gap in the in the severed cord. Um, yeah. C- can you tell me a little bit about the, the implant and the surgery? Do, do we know anything about that? Is it, is it, is it a very complicated thing to do? So it, it's complicated in some senses. The the implant itself isn't actually that complex, but installing it in exactly the right way is the tricky part. And one of the real innovations that these researchers have developed is they developed a series of computational models to basically optimize where you're placing the electrodes on the different nerves. And, you know, you can think about it, this wouldn't necessarily be the same for everyone, right, for a huge variety of different people and body types and everything. Um, They made this series of models to help make the surgical implantation be as good as possible. And one thing that I think is great is they've actually made these models freely available so that more people can do these kind of measurements um, in more different patients. So obviously, you know, nine people, not a huge sample size yet, but they're making this method available so that more people can give it a try. And I mean, the researchers emphasize it's not a cure. You know, this isn't this isn't going to let you walk around your house all day, every day. But it does allow some amount of movement. And actually, the more movement that uh, people that have had these kind of spinal cord injuries are able to do, the more it helps the nerves regenerate, it helps the muscles grow, um, and it can really improve quality of life, even if it's only a little bit of walking a day. Really, really exciting research. Wonder what what it will mean for those many paralyzed patients across the world. 
Um, Shane, our second story has to do with chimpanzees using medicine in a very peculiar way. I've never heard anything quite like this story. Yeah, this is fantastic. So we, we know that animals like birds, bears, elephants, even dogs um, self-medicate by eating plants. But what has never been observed before now has been an animal treating another so acting as doctor. And that's what's been reported in this paper in the Journal of Current Biology. A, a scientist, a German scientist um, working in Gabon, noticed a, a chimp called Susie uh, treating the foot of her adolescent son. And um, what Susie was doing was catching insects, chewing them up a bit in her mouth, and then a kind of uh, ad- administering them to his uh, cut on his foot. And um, this had healing properties. And so the scientist was amazed at this and decided to hang around, as you do. And over 15 months, uh, she observed this behavior happening 45, or sorry, 19 times in, in a group of 45 chimps. And uh, this is incredible because the, the chimpanzees are, are know that it's, it's, it's a good idea to help their, their teammates, their troop. Um, but it's also interesting that the chimps are allowing um, themselves to be uh, medicated. So you'd imagine if you had a sore limb as a chimpanzee, you wouldn't want anything to go near it. Um, but they're very, very happy. They must know that somehow it's beneficial for the other chimps to come along and to treat it. The reason why um, we talk about animal cognition on this program all the time, and often it's to do with you know um, a, an instantaneous reward for a mechanical pressure of some sort. So uh, a a crow is taught to push a button and it gets a reward or a bird drops a rock on something and cracks a nut, whatever it is. This is remarkable in that it is the treatment of others with a medicine. So something that doesn't have immediate um, action, but will presumably over time. And and that this is what seems to be a culturally shared knowledge of that that benefit. I mean, I, I, I think it is one of the most astounding discoveries I've heard on in the 11 years reporting on this program. I agree. Like to think that an animal can show empathy for another, that it, it realizes it's, it's, it's in bother and it's willing to do something about it is fantastic. It's, it's, oh, but, that it's, happen, but that happens all the time, Shane, doesn't it? I mean, the, the thing to me, and, and sorry to cut you off, and I'm very excited, but the, the thing that to me is that, that, that knowledge of this is, a, this is a product from the land that I can apply, that can fix something over time, and that is shared amongst the group. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It seems to me that there's a, a certain mix or matrix of, of cognitive abilities there. Yeah, and we know that this, this, this uh, species can use tools. And so um, what the scientists want to do next is understand what type of insects might they be catching, and do those insects have some sort of medicinal anti-inflammatory, uh, anti-inflammatory styled property that may help the wound? So it must work. It must work. I mean, or else it's a witch doctor. They, they, you know, they, this group of chimpanzees have started developing very early gods and, and, and superstitions. Um, but that's really, um, I think it's amazing. And so this particular group of chimpanzees, are they shown to do anything else that's particularly unusual or? Um... Uh, not that's reported in the paper. Um, and, uh, perhaps it shows my childishness that I had to look up the collective noun for chimpanzees. It's a troop, group, or indeed a whoop, if you're interested. I did not know. Uh, I didn't, a new troop. I did not know whoop. Thanks, Jane. Um, so our third story, Jessamine, has to do with so-called sonogenetics. Another really interesting story. 
Yeah, so this the idea of this story is looking for proteins in the human body that are sensitive to sound. Um, and you might wonder why we would want to do this. Um, but even just going back to my previous story, right, about the spinal implant, there's all sorts of medical technologies that can be implanted within the human body to try to fix various medical issues. Um, but there's a lot of problems with these invasive approaches, right? Like the surgery, the upkeep of the device long term, you know, whether it needs like batteries or wiring. Um, and so researchers are looking for non-invasive ways to treat things that have traditionally been treated with like pacemakers or insulin pumps or, you know, even brain electrodes. And so they've been looking for uh, sound sensitive proteins that might occur in human or other mammalian uh, creatures. And they found one. Um, it's called the human TRPA1 protein, very catchy name. Um, and effectively what it does is it just opens up a little channel in cells um, when they're exposed to noxious compounds. It's found in the brain and the heart. And these researchers have found that it actually responds when it's uh, in human cells to a seven megahertz frequency. Now this is kind of in the middle of the ultrasound range. Um, it's close to what you might get if you were getting a, an ultrasound or a sonogram for pregnancy. Um, and the lower uh, sonogram frequencies can basically penetrate further into tissue, right? And that's, that's what's useful about it for pregnancy. If you are just a giant ball um, and you want to see what's inside <laughs> that ball, as I was and I did, um, then sonograms are really useful. Huh. Um, but this TRPA1 gene can actually be used to activate something in response to a sonogram frequency. And so this is really interesting in terms of potentially being able to actually just with ultrasound waves and not with any sort of invasive cutting or electrodes, be able to, you know, stimulate heart cells or be able to stimulate brain cells. Now, it obviously would require some genetic sort of insertion of this, the gene that makes this protein. So that's why they're calling it sonogenetics, um, which I think is a little bit much for the level of development that we're at with this science. <laughs> But it's a really interesting idea, right? You know, what if instead of having a pacemaker installed um, to help your heart keep going, if you could just get some sort of, you know, ultrasound delivery thing on the outside of your body that then would be able to provide that help or the same thing for brain or insulin pumps. Like, I think it's a really interesting direction for the research to go. So there's obviously quite a lot of work required um, before we can start actually using this technology. Right. So it's, it's just essentially they've discovered a hack for a cell. And now the, the question is, what can we do with it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And this is something that would have to be, you know, act actually modified on the genetic level. So it's not to say that you're going to go in for your sonogram and your baby is going to get mutant powers from the sonogram machine. As far as I know, that's still far in the future. Um, but I think the medical applications of this could be really powerful. And finally, Shane, on, on this um, week that saw the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, representation is something that we need to talk about. Um, tell me about your study. Yeah, so uh, I worked with a physics teacher called Karen Pillen, who was a student in UCD, and we looked at the representation of women in Leaving Cert physics textbooks. Now, we did this because uh, textbooks are the things that students use every day. They're, they're like, it is the de facto curriculum for those students. And so what they see represented in the book sort of defines what physics is to them while they're in Leaving Cert. And we found that uh, women are hugely underrepresented in all of the physics books. Um, for both the scientific characters and also, perhaps alarmingly, for the non-scientific characters. So just generic people who are depicted within text or in images, they count for 30% of, uh, of, of all characters. For the scientific uh, people within the book, less than 10% of, of those depicted are, are women. The language is also quite paternalistic as well when we refer to, to men as greats or the father of, etc., and of course, all of this contributes to 
a sense of women and, and girls looking at physics and thinking, this is not a place that I belong or would fit into. And that's a problem. No, absolutely. And um, I studied communications in DCU and it was a it was a strange course back um, in the 90s where we had maybe 20 hours of, of learning, but we did a linguistics course. And, and in it, I, I came across a number of books that really kind of opened my eyes to, to language. One was um, Andrea Dworkin's Pornography, in which he talked about, you know, the, the men's world of language uh, as well as image. Um, but there was also, you know, this this understanding of language and where where words come from and how words are are very much biased towards a particular framework and culture. And I think you're absolutely right. If we if we have um, if we have textbooks that even when there's a real opportunity to to create gender balance, um, just even even just for optics, which of course shouldn't be the way it is, that that's not even even sees. It, it just makes a, a book a very unwelcoming place for or at least an unsimilar place for, for, for women. Jasmine. I think especially at this, you know, at the early stage, like you were saying, Shane, you know, at the leaving cert stage or even earlier, it's very important that we see role models represented. You know, there's this idea that if that you can't be it unless you can see it, you know, and I know for me, I was very lucky to grow up in a town where just there were so many scientists that I never thought of science as being a particularly, you know, male or female thing. Um, I knew all sorts of people working in all sorts of fields uh, because I grew up in a national lab town in the U.S. in Los Alamos. And I didn't realize until much later that it was unusual to have those kind of scientific role models um, in your childhood across, you know, across genders, across ethnicities. And, you know, if you're not a person or a child that grows up knowing a bunch of scientists, then your perception of it would be from textbooks, you know, from movies and TV. And you'd get a very gendered idea of who gets to be a scientist or an engineer from that. And I think that that really does a disservice uh, to the broad variety of you know, talented people that exist in the world who might want to pursue these fields. So I think looking at representation in, in every form of media and looking at, like you said, Jonathan, like the language that we use to talk about people and to talk about these fields is incredibly important. When we look at you know historical physics, for example, a lot of the discoveries were attributed to men. How do you build a textbook that recognizes the contribution of women in an equal way that is also historically accurate? Yeah, there's a lot of people have thought about this. And what you can do is you can recognize the historical injustices that have happened. So women have often been written out of the history books and their husbands or their partners got the credit. This happened right up until recent times. So you can acknowledge that. Uh, You can do a little bit of retrospective work and name some of the women if you know them um, and you, you can you can be more honest about the fact that the culture back then isn't okay now um, and and so we have to recognize that like it, it's one job to encourage more women and minorities to, to come into physics but it's another job for physics to change too for physics and science more generally to become a more welcoming place for women and minorities. Uh, Jessamine your thoughts on that? Well, I think firstly, it's important to recognize, right, that we can't rewrite history, but we can reframe how we look at it. Yeah. So, you know, understanding that the way that science was done before was was sexist, was racist, and that we can acknowledge that and how we look at it now, especially looking at, you know, who's been written out of histories of science, um, who wasn't given proper credit for their work. 
Um, but also, you know, just acknowledging this is the way that science was done at the time. A lot of people were erased. That isn't okay. And also looking for examples of, you know, the, the hidden figures or the unsung heroes of science that might not have been acknowledged in years past, but they certainly can be now. And hopefully that's going to start to change the culture of how science is done. Well, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway, Dr. Shane Bergerman from UCD, thanks very much. So it kind of missed your attention that our world is getting warmer, and that is a bad thing. But while new technologies and processes are being developed to try and tackle the CO2 in the atmosphere, they are nowhere near a production level to start making a difference. We need more time. Could geoengineering be an answer? Well, this is a question our next guest is trying to answer. His name is uh, Peter Irvine. He's a lecturer in climate change and solar geoengineering at University College London, and he's the co-host of a podcast called Challenging Climate. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Peter. This idea of geoengineering, you know, it, it is, it's still a, a term that, that frightens people. Um, but maybe you might first explain what it is, what, what solar en- uh, geoengineering is, and why we, we probably should be at least thinking about researching it. Yeah, so solar geoengineering describes a set of ideas to increase the amount of light that the Earth reflects. Um, There are two ways in which we're changing the Earth's uh, climate, two ways in which we're changing the amount of energy that it absorbs. The one is we're adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. These trap heat, they warm the planet. That's the leading driver of climate change. But we've also added aerosol pollution or aerosol particulates to the atmosphere. Now, these have scattered light. They've cooled the Earth. But they're the cause of air pollution, which is killing millions of people every year. So as we clean the air up, we're losing the cooling effect from our pollution and keeping the warming effect of greenhouse gases. The solar geoengineering proposals are a set of ideas to increase that aerosol cooling effect, but do it in a cleaner way. So I I said this is controversial, and it is. I mean, the the Society for Concerned Scientists have written a a, a sort of mission statement on on this. There is um, a general fear. And when when I talked about this maybe 10 years ago in the program, the idea that we might be putting stuff in our atmosphere to slow down uh, global warming, I, I thought, oh, God, I hope it doesn't come to that. But there's probably a couple of things there, right? Because we are really running out of time. Um, why is geoengineering even being considered at the moment? I mean, first, yeah, it's worth thinking about where we're at with climate change. And I think it's wrong to say that we aren't making progress. We really are. The UK has made a significant cut in its emissions. The US has made significant cuts. There's there's big advances in renewable technology. Solar and wind are outcompeting um, fossil fuels at the margin. It's The change is beginning, but that change is against a backdrop of a world where the economy is is booming or continuing to grow in many parts of the world and energy demand is growing ever more each year. So the two effects have sort of more or less cancelled out. We, we look like we might be about to peak global CO2 emissions, but the pledges that countries made at the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, they wanted to limit warming to one and a half Celsius uh, or two Celsius, and they added up the commitments they made to cut emissions. And if you look at that, The commitments they've made will leave us with emissions staying about what they are today in 2030, rather than cutting by half, which is what we need to achieve the one and a half Celsius target. So we're a long way from meeting the emissions targets or or having efforts at a significant scale that could could deal with this problem. So we're going to have substantial warming over the coming decades, and that's going to come with serious impact. 
And of course, um, that's assuming everybody meets their um, emissions targets, some of which are, are very ambitious. And certainly in, in, in Ireland, the context of Ireland, an, an analysis says that we're, we're way off meeting any projected hopeful target emissions. So we have a, we have a problem that we need to fix. And um, reducing fossil fuels, of course, is a huge part of that. But that, that CO2 stays in the environment. And that's the problem that it, we we're continuing to add, and that is going to continue to, to warm up our planet with a sort of a trickle down effect, and um, that leads to, to to bigger changes in current and acidification of oceans and so on. So this idea of artificially manipulating our atmosphere may be scary to some, but at the same time, it may buy us some time. Is that the idea? Well, I think it's worth saying it's it's scary to everyone. I think everyone <laughs> I know who works on this topic was initially worried about it. It's a, it, I mean, it's an interesting idea and it looks as if it would work. But I think all of us working on this are, you know, we're, we're not jumping into this gleefully. It's a, it's a frightening prospect. The question is, is it more of a frightening prospect than a world that's projected to warm three Celsius and change substantially as a result? I mean, I think it's a little like chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is a very scary prospect. There's no way you would do it for fun. The only reason you do it is to fight a very serious disease. Mm. So take me through where we are with this technology at the moment. There are a couple of uh, ways we can essentially block out the sun um, it partially to reduce this temperature rise. And that's only one one type of, of, of geoengineering, right? So um, take us through the various platforms and where we are in terms of testing. Yeah, so so geoengineering is a is a broader term. Geoengineering includes um, what's now called carbon dioxide removal or negative emissions technologies. This is sort of a, an extension of emissions cuts into the negative territory. We can suck CO two out of the air. That often gets bundled together with this solar geoengineering idea, which is all to do with reflecting sunlight. Now, there are two main ideas that have real traction uh, here. One is stratospheric aerosol injection, stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. This is an idea that um, draws its inspiration from the effect of major volcanic eruptions. So uh, Mount Tambora in 1815, Mount Krakatoa in 1885, Mount Pinatubo in 1991. These are all very powerful eruptions that produced a plume of particles that reached into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere. And there they spread around the world and you reflected light and cooled the planet for a couple of years. So after the 1815 eruption, they called it the year without a summer, 1816, the same year they wrote Frankenstein. So that idea would work. We know that adding particles to the upper atmosphere scatters light and cools the planet. Now, we're not going to cause volcanic eruptions to get there. The re how we'd get there is to use high altitude jets. Um, aircraft can't fly that high typically, but there's no reason they can't do it. And, and we, we can use existing parts effectively to build a new jet that could get to that altitude. And it would be relatively cheap to do so. Um, the engineering assessments all come back saying this would cost of order, you know, ten tens of billions of dollars per year. But that pales in comparison to the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that are needed for adaptation and the trillions of dollars that will be needed to change our energy system. So it's expensive, but it's very doable. Now, what sort of material are these jets um, planning to sort of scatter? And, and how on earth do they scatter enough for it to cover the globe. Well, yeah. So, so the the principle underlying this, the reason these little particles can have such a large impact, is that basically the more you distribute a, a lump of stuff, the more you break it down into smaller and smaller particles, 
the more light it will scatter. I mean, you can imagine this. If you had a block of salt on the table and then you smashed it into, you know, a thousand tiny little pieces, you'll cover a lot more area. And if you smash it further and the more, more finely you grind it, the more area you can cover. And this, go this goes all the way down until you get to about the wavelength of light. So if you get particles that are that small, you get a lot, a lot, a lot of surface area, a lot of light reflected for a relatively small amount of material. Now, the reason it has such a big impact uh, in the stratosphere is that there's effectively, there's no weather in the stratosphere. There are strong winds and that distributes the particles around the world, but there aren't clouds and they normally clean the particle pollution out of the air and rain it out. So in the stratosphere, there's no clouds to, to pull these particles out. Instead, they're whisked around the world by the winds and then they slowly settle over the course of a year or two. So we have, I mentioned earlier that the, we have a large cooling effect from pollution particles in the lower atmosphere, but they only hang around for a few days before they're caught up in rain. The same particles in the stratosphere last for a year or more. So they have hundred, like a hundred times more cooling effect for the same mass of material. When you say a year or more, how do we know that? And how, because um, that sounds very, that's, it's starting to sound very appealing. If it's a year or more and then they're gone, then this is a temporary break um, uh, which I always thought that once we do something like that, it's it's irreparable. But obviously, there are there are larger things that it may affect. But in in terms of that that first initial year, where where did the particles go? So yeah, we we know this from the volcanic eruptions. So when Mount Pinatubo went off in 1991, it put up uh, 10 million tons of sulfur dioxide, which forms these sulfuric acid droplets, these tiny little droplets that were spread out across the world. Now. They get whisked around the world in the first year or so, and then after about a couple of years, they're mostly fallen out. So we can we've observed that happening. That's that what that's what happened when the volcanoes do it, and so we can be pretty sure that if we did a similar thing with aircraft, the particles would last a similar amount of time. Now, in terms of would we be doing this permanently, this isn't just a one-year thing. If you wanted to keep temperatures low to offset the warming effect of greenhouse gases, you need to keep doing this. So you need to keep topping it up every year. You need to keep the aircraft flying until you you know you've got emissions cut to zero you start pulling the co2 out of the atmosphere or you start phasing down this cooling so that you you realize the warming that would otherwise have been there but you realize it more slowly okay um what, what sort of particles are we talking about by the way so if we copy volcanic eruptions we would put up sulfuric acid sulfur dioxide it forms sulfuric acid droplets this is also the byproduct of uh, burning fossil fuels um one of the one of the pollutants that we worry about is sulfate pollutant. So we know it forms these very reflective particles. We we know it fairly well in the environment because volcanoes have done it and we've done it in the tropics in the lower atmosphere. It's kind of the devil we know. We're certain it would work, but it has some side effects. Um, for Such one, as? it's acid rain. Um, we're talking in terms of to to basically have a substantial impact and reduce the rate of warming. We're talking maybe offsetting 1% of incoming sunlight. So it's not blocking the sun exactly. It's slightly reducing the amount of sun that comes in. And that's how much we want to reduce the sunlight by. And that's talking about maybe 10 million tons of sulfur dioxide, which is a lot of stuff. But we currently put out about 100 million tons in the lower atmosphere around people. So from ships, from polluting industries, primarily in Asia, there's a lot of sulfate pollution already. So this would add to that problem. It would add to the acid rain that comes with it. But it's only about 10%, even at very large scale, of, of what we currently emit. Okay. That, I mean, that doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> um, the idea that it's something that would 
would dissipate over time is obviously good. What other, I mean, there, there must be unknowns with this, right? Because, you know, this is a new type of technology, although the idea has been sort of tested by nature. Um, how that how it would work in real life must be difficult. Do, do you just model this or or can you find a way of, of actually testing this physically without causing too much trouble? Well, so uh, you mentioned other, you asked if there's other particle or there's other ideas. And, and this, as I said, sulfate is in a, in a way the devil we know it would work, but has some side effects. Now, there are other particles, um, other ideas like calcite, um, alumina dust, diamond dust, which might be a little expensive. But there are other ideas for particles that we could release. But in those cases, we don't have experience of them being released into the upper atmosphere. So that's where field tests could come in very handy. If we released a small amount of calcite from a balloon, there's a proposal to do this, we would understand the chemistry that happens in the stratosphere. The ozone, the ozone layer is in the stratosphere, so the chemistry of the stratosphere is, is, is very important. So anything you release up there will affect that chemistry, and you can test some of that on a small scale. But when it comes to the climate effects of solar geoengineering, you can't test that. There's no way to test it except to do it and um, rely on your models to, to make good predictions. If you're talking about an acute change in temperature by putting this stuff up there, do we know you know how that might affect things like I don't know um, sea temperatures immediately or or tides or winds or storms? Do we do we, if if we were to start doing the solar geoengineering in, in the stratosphere, do we know what the what the effects on major weather events and and uh, and ecosystems will be? Well, I think it's important to say that it's very early days yet on this research. I mean, I've been working the topic for a little over 10 years. And in that time, it's gone from a field of about 10 people to a field of a couple hundred people. So there's a small fraction of the total work that's going on with climate change. But we use exactly the same tools as we use for projecting the impacts of climate change. We can apply them to this problem. Now, there are big uncertainties. Um, you know, there's a lot of choices about how this would be done. We wouldn't want to do what a volcano does and put 10 million tons up tomorrow. You'd want to put a small amount in and, and gradually scale up and, and, and check how things are going. Now, we have to, we're going to have to rely on climate models to project what would happen. Uh, but we can also rely to some extent on, on theory. We know, we know that it won't address some of the effects of CO2. CO2 acidifies the ocean as it gets absorbed there. Um, it also affects plants because they breathe it in. And it also has some direct effects on the energy balance of the planet. It, it traps that heat that's escaping, and so it warms the atmospheric column. Now, reducing sunlight doesn't offset that perfectly, but it would lower temperatures. And we know that many of the risks of climate change are strongly correlated with temperature. The, the, the thermal expansion of the oceans, the warming of the oceans, driven by temperature, the melting of ice, the glaciers, the ice sheets, primarily driven by temperature, the melting of permafrost, which is releasing methane, again, primarily driven by temperature. But there are other things that are less certain and are more difficult to predict. Um, regional changes in rainfall is an area that's, that's concerning. This idea is not the same as just having less CO2 in the atmosphere. It would have a different effect on regional rainfall patterns. Now, we're, we're still in early, it's still the early days. The simulations seem to suggest that overall, the changes would be smaller, but they would be different. So some places may see greater changes in climate. There is, um, uh, as I say, uh, some other attempts to to geoengineer the planet. Um, some of them looking at, for example, um, putting up shields in space um, and some uh, looking at um, sort of manipulating clouds. Can you very briefly um, go through the other competing ideas? 
Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of ideas floated. It's quite easy to come up with an idea. It's quite hard for it to actually make sense. So uh, the idea of putting sunshades into space is is technically possible. It would certainly work, but it might it would be incredibly expensive to implement. Now, it might be possible 100 years from now. That might be the, the cleanest way to do things, but it is very expensive to get into space. Now, there's other ideas to you know increase the, the, the amount of light reflected from the surface. But again, that's quite expensive because you've got to actually cover the surface with stuff and you can't use that surface for something else. Now, the other idea that has some real potential is called marine cloud brightening and kind of does exactly what it says in the tin, which is you spray the idea is to spray up uh, seawater particles uh, into the underneath of clouds. And um, with more little droplets, the clouds would have would scatter more light. And so you'd get a cooling. Now, that only works where you've got clouds that can scatter light and it has to be over the ocean. So it can only work in a sort of a patchy way. But um, one of the areas where they're looking into this quite seriously is the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Like they know, and we know that the Great Barrier Reef is, a, is effectively doomed. Um, we reckon that, na well, there's estimates that 99% of the extent of tropical coral reefs will be gone by two Celsius. Like they'll be effectively wiped from the earth. And so obviously there's efforts underway in Australia to think about radical ideas to cool it down. And one of them is to explore this marine cloud brightening idea as a way to mitigate local heating above the Great Barrier Reef. I suppose one of the benefits of that is you're not adding anything to that system. You're just leaning on the scales a little bit. Um, would that be correct? Well, it's um, yes. The material releases sea salt. So that's obviously around anyway in the ocean. So it's not too problematic from the kind of pollution side. But yeah, if you intervene to cool any region of the world substantially, it's going to have knock-on effects on remote areas, and they'll be hard to predict. So I think it's an idea that sounds more appealing, um, but it does raise some of the same issues. You know, who gets to decide how we change the climate, and um, what about the people downstream of those impacts? God, it's um, a fascinating subject, and uh, you know, when I first talked about this, it did seem like a total crazy horror show of an idea, and, and it is still very terrifying that we might need to do something like this. But um, there seems to be some merit as if it's a last resort option. It doesn't seem like as bad an idea as it first seemed to me. Really interesting uh, speaking with you, uh, Dr. Peter Irvine from University College London. Thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. Well, I'd love to know if that um, gave you some part of optimism I felt it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be to be honest um, love to get your thoughts you can email us science at newstalk.com uh, you can also find us on Twitter we're at Newstalk Science that's it for this week's podcast thanks to Aidan McKelvey Simon Keane JJ Clark Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardoza who's on sound we'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday in the meantime stay curious Music